Our text is Colossians 3, 18 through 21. As I was studying this text this past week, I was thinking about this, that some passages of the Bible are so countercultural, they so rub cross-grain to the way that we tend to think, they so confront our own mindset that they make us choose. Will we accept this as the authoritative word of God to us? Or will we submit this to our own preferences? There are some passages of scripture that are so countercultural. They so conflict with the way we tend to think that, that we are actually forced to say, God, are you authoritative? Is this your word and will I submit myself to it? Or will I submit your word to my opinions? This is a passage like that. It goes uh, so contrary to the way we think and to what our culture proclaims to us. And one of the things that makes it so is, is not only what it says to do. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. But it's, it's, it's also how specific it is. It's one thing to read this command to love one another. Okay, Jesus said in response to the question, what is the greatest commandment? He said this. Well, here it is. It's you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and that is a countercultural, all-encompassing claim about what we are to do. But this is very specific. It, it's, it, it talks to wives. It talks to husbands. It talks to children. It talks to parents. I mean, you just look around the room. If you're a wife, you know who you are, and others know who you are. If you're a husband, you know who you are, and others know who you are. You're a child. People know that you're a child under the authority of your parents. It's so specific, not only in who it's talking to, it's specific also in what it's saying. Submit, love, obey, encourage. And because this passage is so countercultural, I think that it's important for us to understand carefully what it says. And that's what we're going to do in the time we have with us. Uh, but before we do, let me just, before we get into these specific uh, commands that relate to these different individuals, let me explain to you why this comes here in the flow of the letter. And you may not have been with us for the entirety of our series, but for, even for those of you who have been, it's helpful to remind ourselves, okay, where, where is this coming in Paul's flow of thought? So the, the central message of Colossians, as I've reminded you week after week, is that true maturity comes only through Jesus Christ. So in the first part of Colossians, Paul is, is unveiling this full-length portrait of Jesus. And he's saying, Jesus is so great. He is the Lord of creation. By him all things were created. And he is also the Lord of new creation. He has the power not only to bring into existence things that did not exist, but he also has the power to reconcile all things to himself. Jesus is responsible for things as they are, but Jesus is also going to take what? 
what thing, the things as they are and make them what they should be. Because if you look at the world around us, we recognize that it is a shattered, fragmented, and broken place. Jesus is going to make it right again. And right now, Jesus is bringing people who are far from God, and by the blood of his cross, he's bringing them to a right relationship with God. That's what Jesus is doing right now. That's what Jesus is doing in our world today through the preaching of his word. So Paul is exalting Christ as the Lord of creation, and then he's presenting Jesus as the only way in which true fulfillment can be found. So if this is who Jesus is, if he is so great, if he has such power, why would you seek for maturity in any other place? Why would you go to a list of rules like touch not, taste not, handle not, and think that by following a list of rules you can reach true maturity? Why would you go to some ecstatic experience as Paul speaks about in verse 18 he says, let, of chapter 2? He says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Why would you go to some ecstatic religious experience when you have Jesus in you? So true maturity, true fulfillment is found in Jesus Christ alone. But that fulfillment, that life that you have in Jesus is not something that you can work for. It's something that you've been given. And so the Christian growth, the pursuit of holiness, the lifestyle associated with life in Jesus Christ is not the product or the result of clawing after a relationship with God, not, and not after trying to pry from God a life that you don't have. It's by working from a life that you've been given. That is the, the paradigm-shifting mindset that Paul explains here in, in the first part of chapter 3 when he says this, if you then have been raised with Christ, so if you have your Bible, look at that verse there. It says, if you've been raised with Christ, you have a relationship with Jesus that's so close and so intimate that, that it can be said that you have been raised with Jesus Christ if you're believing in him. Okay, having this life now flowing from this life, you can seek the things that are above. You can live the sort of life that Jesus Christ teaches you to live, right? The, the life that is, you have in Christ is not something that you work for, but it's something that you work from. That's why the logic here in the flow of the letter is so important. That we don't take the commands that are given in chapter 3, such as putting to death certain vices like sexual immorality and idolatry and wrath, that we don't try to put on the virtues without the life of Jesus Christ. And so when Paul addresses wives and husbands and children and parents and bond slaves and, and bosses, he's not telling them to act so that they can have life in Jesus Christ. He's saying, here's what your life in Jesus looks like when it's lived out in these relationships. It makes sense that if a person is a believer in Jesus Christ, it affects every part of their life including the most foundational relationships that a person can have. Marriage, parenting. That's what Paul is addressing here. So the question is, okay, what does this change look like? If a person has been brought to life in Jesus, how is that life going to inform their relationships? How is that life in Jesus going to inform how a wife responds to her husband, how a husband responds to his wife, how children respond to their parents, how parents respond to their children. That's why verses 18 to 21 is here. That's where, we, that's, that's where this fits in the flow of the letter. 
And here is where we are confronted face to face with something that seems to pull the rug right out from under many of our cultural assumptions. So let me explain, help highlight how this hits us by drawing attention to two different ways of looking at this passage. Okay. On the one hand, someone might look at this passage and they would read this thing about wives submitting to their husbands. And they would say this, this is a prime example of an ancient text that represses and subdues individual freedom. Right? Someone might look at this text and say, here's a perfect example of a male-dominated society in which individualism and freedom are being pushed down. And therefore, we really can't take seriously what Paul is saying. That's what someone might look at this text and, and think that way. And a person who thinks that way prizes individual expression and freedom and thinks this text just tramples right over it. Okay, that's one way of looking at this, right? Now, here's another way of looking at this. Another person might read the same text and say, well, individual expression or freedom, be what it may, whatever, but here is God's recipe for a happy family. Someone else might look at this passage and say, this is, it doesn't, doesn't really matter what our culture says, but here's God's recipe for a happy family. As if the ideal existence for a person is thriving within those roles. But, so whether you see this passage as repressing individualism, like an ancient text that is, that is, demeaning women perhaps, or whether you see it, well, this is just God's recipe for a happy family. Either approach fails to see this text in light of the flow of thought here. Because if there's a person who really values tradi traditional family values, whether it's a person who uh, holds to liberal values, on the one hand, the person who prizes individual freedom may be surprised to learn that, Paul, that Paul's instructions here actually raises the status of women and children. In, in, the, in the cultural context of Paul's day, Paul's day, this reasoning was actually radical. Because Paul did not ground his instruction for wives to submit to their husbands in the inferiority of women and the superiority of men as other ancient household codes did. Rather, he is grounding these instructions in the relationship with Jesus Christ. But the traditionally minded person might be surprised to also learn that this is not presented as God's recipe for a happy family. This is presented as the outflow of a person's relationship with Jesus whether or not it results in a happy family. Why well, do we know this? Why? Because Jesus said, I've come not to bring peace but a sword. In the Gospels, we have this astonishing statement that Jesus says, I have come to set a man against a father and a daughter against her mother and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Which tells us this. God is interested in something more important for you than having a happy family. 
This is not a recipe for a happy family. Neither is this repression of individual expression. Rather, this is what happens when the life of Jesus so takes a person and impacts every part of that person's life, including the way in which God has put them into society as a wife or as a husband or as a child or as a parent. The, the thing that is dominant here is not individual expression nor a traditional family unit. The thing that is dominant is Jesus Christ and his being Lord. That's why Paul said earlier in this book, the very crux of this, of this book is as you have received uh, Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, right? Here's what should dominate all of our thinking. Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life and living with Jesus as Lord impacts every area of my life. So on the one hand, if you think that self-expression and individual liberty is everything, you'll be disappointed by this passage. <laughs> if you think that traditional family unit is everything, you'll be disappointed by this passage. But if your heart has been so captured by the love of Christ, you'll see this is exactly the way a person who loves Jesus wants to live. And so the main question that we need to ask here as we deal with this passage is this. How do people who have been raised with Christ, because verse 1 of chapter 3 says, if you have been raised with Christ, how do people who have been raised with Christ live their family lives? Or to condense that question a little more, let's put it this way. What does a Christ-centered family look like? What does a Christ-centered family look like? And so the, the four parts of the sermon will answer that question as they relate to the different individuals that are addressed here. What does a Christ-centered family look like? So first of all, in a Christ-centered family, the wife submits to her husband. Because it says here, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now we may ask the question here, wow, is this really that important? Like, is this maybe just some obscure passage about the relationship of wives to husbands that, that we don't find anywhere else in the New Testament? But actually, this is a prominent theme that we find throughout the New Testament. In Ephesians 5 verse 24, Paul writes also, wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In Titus chapter 2 verse 5, Titus is telling the, that the older women in the church should teach younger women to be submissive to their own husbands. Peter, so this is not restricted to just Paul. Paul wrote Ephesians and Titus as well as Colossians. But Peter, in, in his letter, he said, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And also in verse 22 of chapter 3, he's referring to the women of old, the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. So this comes up again and again in the New Testament. Not some obscure uh, passage here, but it is an important theme about the relationship of wives to their husbands. So what I want to look at under this heading as a wife submits to her husband is what this doesn't mean, what it does mean, why it's glorious, and how it's possible. So in a Christ-centered family, a wife submits to her husband. First of all, I think you need to understand what it doesn't mean. Because a woman might look at this and she says, well, if that's what it says, I want nothing to do with it, and yet doesn't understand what this word submitting is actually mean, actually means. Let me just give you five things that this submission does not mean. First of all, it does not mean that a woman can have no opinion. Aren't you glad for that, ladies? <laughs> Submitting to 
your husband doesn't mean that you can't have a, an opinion that, okay, I'm just, I, I, thought, I don't have any thoughts in my head. I'm just, I'm just a submitter, whatever you want. That's, that's not what this means at all. And it doesn't mean that you always have to agree. A wife submitting to her husband doesn't mean that she can't have any thoughts or opinions, or, and it doesn't mean that she always has to agree. In fact, it, in any healthy relationship, there is always dialogue, and dialogue involves disagreement, and, and disagreement, if properly stewarded, can result in a better decision than would have made if just one person were calling all the shots. So being submissive doesn't mean that you always agree. Being submissive, third, doesn't mean that you suppress your strengths. It doesn't mean that a woman says, oh, I can't be good at anything, especially I can't be better than anything that my husband is. That's not what this means at all. Like any honest husband would have to admit that, my wa- that, that, that his wife is a lot better than he is at a lot of different things. In fact, husbands, your wife may excel uh, over you in most things in life. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that for some reason she is exempt from this passage. It doesn't mean that she has to suppress her strengths Fourth, it doesn't mean that she has to surrender her influence. God has given a woman influence to steward. We see this throughout Scripture, that women had influence in the church and that women had influence in the Old Testament. There are some women who did some amazing things. And fifth, it doesn't mean that a woman is to disobey God if her husband tells her to do something contrary to the will of God. And notice that the word submit here is carefully distinguished from the word obey, the direction given to children. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. It might include obedience, but it is broader than that. So, what then, let me, before I go to what it means, let me explain how we know that it doesn't mean these things. It doesn't mean that a wife can't have an opinion. It doesn't mean that she must always agree. It doesn't mean that she must suppress her strengths. It doesn't mean that she must surrender her influence. And it certainly doesn't mean that she must disobey God. Why? Because communicating with her husband, because engaging in healthy dialogue, because using your abilities and influence, because obeying God are all things that a Christian woman must do. I mean, God has made you unique. You, you, uh, wives, God has given you unique skill sets, things that he wants you to exercise for his glory. And submitting doesn't mean suppressing any of these things. Whatever submission means, we must understand it carefully. Look at this word for submit in different areas of Scripture because this is not the only place in Scripture in which this word submit is used. This word submit is used to describe the responsibility of believers in society to the government. Believers are to submit to their governing authorities. We find this in Romans chapter 13 and Titus chapter 3. Submit. Believers are submit to submit to God. We find this in James chapter 4 verse 7. In Ephesians 5 24, the same word for submit is used to describe the relationship between the church and Christ. And the younger to the elder in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 5. But I'm going to list a couple surprising ways in which this word submit is used. The same word that's translated submit is also used of Jesus in his relationship to his parents. He submitted to them in Luke chapter 2 verse 51. But here's, here's the real shocker. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 28, Scripture tells us, I'll read this to you. 
when all things are subjected to the Son, this is God the Son, the second person of the Godhead, then the Son himself will be, and here is the word that's translated submit in Colossians 3.18, the Son himself will be subjected to him, that is God the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now, right here in that verse, you have this astonishing statement about the meaning of submission. And that is, even within the persons of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who are eternally co-equal, you have submission even in the persons of the Godhead. So submission cannot be based on any inferiority. Rather, we find the roots of submission in the person of God himself. Here you have two individuals of equal value, but of different functions. And God tells one, your function is to submit. So here's what submission means. It means to willingly place yourself Submission means for a wife. It means to willingly place yourself under the leadership of your husband, affirming and encouraging him in his role as your leader. When Paul wrote these words to his first century Greco-Roman culture, this would have not sounded repressive, but radical. There are other household codes that existed that, that talked about the relationship between husbands and wives. And, and, and this alone instructs a husband to love his wife and bases the wife's submission, not because she's inferior, but because she's equal, which, which tells us this. It, it is not based on the inferiority or the superiority of either husband or wife, but it's based on the superiority of someone else completely, and that is Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as is not fitting because your husband is deserving of it, but because it's fitting in the Lord. Now, as I describe to you what submission is not, I say, here are five things submission is not. Some of you women are like, I'm so glad, so relieved to hear that. But, I didn't hear any major size of relief when I told you what submission was. Because it still doesn't make it easy. Why? Because submission for a wife, like love for a husband, requires something of us that we don't like, and that is selflessness. It's a fundamental change from our natural self-centeredness to God-centeredness. And that's why I stress that the flow of this passage is all important. Right? This, this submission of a wife springs from her relationship with Jesus Christ. If you then have been raised with Christ, you've been given a new life in Christ, that's what you, allows you to live in this way. The thing that motivates and empowers a wife's submission to her husband is not My husband deserves it, because he might not. Nor is it this, my family deserves it, because it might not. The thing that empowers and motivates a wife's submission to her husband is this, Jesus deserves it, because he does. 
because only Jesus displayed that radical selflessness that is required for a wife as is fitting in the Lord. But this is actually what makes submission glorious. And there are two considerations here. And let me speak to the wives here now. Why is this, how can this submission possibly be a glorious thing? First of all, because it is a way and a unique way that you can display the relationship of the church to Christ. We take this from Ephesians chapter 5 that tells wives to submit themselves to their husbands even as the church submits to Christ. There is a unique and unparalleled way in which a, a married couple can display this radically selfless, exclusive devotion that Christ displayed toward, his, toward the church and the church to Christ in a way that no one else can display. This is possible only because of Christ. It is informed and motivated by Christ. And that makes it glorious. And second, it's a way you can uniquely display the relationship of Christ to God. The passage I read earlier refers to, in, in 1 Corinthians 15 refers to the fact that Christ, the, the co-equal with God the Father, God the Son, yet in his function as God the Son, is subject to God the Father. And therein you can display the glory of the Trinity. Which tells us that, that our roles in the family, role between a, the relationship between husband and wife, between a wife and husband and children and parents, it's so much more than just the family. This is about the glory of God. This is about something that eternally transcends us as individuals and it calls for us to submit ourselves to Jesus Christ as Lord so we can glorify him as he instructs us. So in a Christ-centered family, the wife submits to her husband. Second, in a Christ-centered family, the husband loves his wife. So verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. It's easy for us to look at the command of the wives and say, well, that's really countercultural, and then look at the command of the husband and say, well, that really makes sense. Because in this day, it was countercultural, and it still is countercultural when I explain exactly what is meant by love. So, as with the wife's responsibility toward a husband, let me explain what this love is, what it's not, and what motivates it. If love seems easy and submit seems hard, we need to understand exactly what love is. And so to get the fuller picture of this, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul gives a fuller explanation of what motivates and informs and gives shape to the husband's love for his wife. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Paul writes this, Husbands, love your wives. End of sentence? No. How? To what extent? To what degree? Here's how. As Christ loved the church. End of sentence? No. This love goes beyond even that. 
and gave himself up for her and ascended snow. Here's the purpose. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself without splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Feeling overwhelmed yet, husbands? Listen to verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. This is a radically selfless love. Now let me break this down for us in five qualities of love for husbands, of husbands, for their wives. First of all, this love is initiating love. Love is not passive, it's active. It initiates. Jesus initiated his love for the church. God so loved the world that he did not just sit back passively and let them go their self-destructive way. God so loved the world that he took the initiative to send his own son to die on behalf of the world so that anyone who believes in him should not perish. Love is inherently initiating. It takes the initiative. And husbands, that's what your love for your wives must be. It is initiating kind of love. Now, men are typically known to be aggressive, but for some reason, when it comes to their wives, they can be surprisingly passive. I wonder, men, are you passive in your relationship with your wife? I came across an article about this very thing. This is from Forbes magazine, talking about men as passive at work. The man is active, articulate, and proposing, and usually successful in his conversations, especially with other men. But at home, he becomes inactive, inarticulate, and withdrawn. He becomes passive with his wife, and his apparent passivity drives her crazy. In the face of his further retreat, she goes wild. The man will speak and move less to the point of almost becoming motionless, as if that will make him less visible. He sees an impending fight and wants to avoid the unproductive emotional scene. In appearing to retreat, he inadvertently sparks her further interest in getting the situation resolved right now. The article goes on. While women were much, are much more likely to want a time of companionship at the end of the workday, the men are more likely to want some peace and quiet. As she becomes more pressured, he lapses into complete silence, total passivity, and this pattern may turn into the scripts that they play out for years. As someone has said, the opposite of love isn't hate, it's passivity. Men, the love that God calls you to have for your wives is not passive. It's initiating kind of love. It's leading love. It's love that takes the initiative. 
It's sacrificing. It's leading. So I, I said I give you five qualities of this love. It is initiating love, but it's also separating love. We see this in uh, Ephesians chapter 5 when Paul is quoting the book of Genesis in verse 31 when he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a kind of love that says there is no other commitment that has its claims on me like the commitment that I've made to my wife. It's, it's separating love. It's, it's putting a boundary around any other relationship and commitments and saying no to my wife. My wife alone deserves the kind of love that is required of me as a husband. It's, it cuts off even the, 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 the relationship of father and mother in preference to the relationship between husband and wife. It's initiating love. It's separating love. It's self-giving love. This is the love that Christ modeled as he gave himself up for the church, as we read in verse 25 of Ephesians 5. It is self-giving love involving the whole person. Sacrificial love involving the things that we value greatly. Love for a wife ought to be more than a love for a hobby or more than your love for your me time when you get home. It is sanctifying love, as we read in verse 26, modeled upon Christ's love that he might sanctify her. It does, husbands, our loves for our wives ought to actually improve their lives. That's what this love is. Go back to Colossians chapter 3 and we find out what this love is not. Paul says this, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Paul here touches on a point for us men that is unfortunately often the case. And that is behind the smiling mask you may put on when you come to church, there may be anger at home. Words of harshness and bitterness, demeaning words, words that are crushing, words that are hostile. A man whose life has been transformed by the self-giving love of Jesus Christ, abandons anger in his relationship with his wife. Why? Because Jesus died for him and loved him. Men, our love, our ability to love our wives is dependent on our understanding of how much Christ loved and sacrificed for us. This is what it means to set your minds on the things above and to realize that the true man, the real man, real masculinity is the kind of masculinity and manliness that was demonstrated by Jesus as he loved and gave himself and sacrificed himself. This is the kind of love that men ought to have for their wives. And men, this is the kind of love that we must have for our wives. But what could possibly motivate this love? Again, it is not conditioned upon the lovability of your wife. It is not conditioned on whether, well, well, wife, you're not submitting like this, so I'm not going to love like this. No, this is because of Jesus. It is Jesus who informs and motivates the love of a husband for his wife. Husbands, that's why we must know and understand 
the love of Christ. Why we must immerse our minds and hearts in it, bathe in it, let ourselves be shaped and softened by it so that we could love our wives as we should. Self-centered family, husbands love wives. Wives submit to husbands. Children obey parents. We see this in verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. I told you that the commands, the instructions that are given to wives, they were radically countercultural in Paul's day. They raised the status and the dignity of, of women that the command to husbands are countercultural in Paul's day. And so was this command to children. Well, I think about it. Paul is writing a letter that is meant to be read in a church. And in reading that letter, he expects that children will listen to it and understand what he's saying. Like children are not just non-humans, non-people, but they're actually active participants in the church. Like they were there, able to receive instruction, able to listen and understand. See, th this, is, this is radically counterculture in Paul's day. He expected them to hear. He expected them to be in church. He valued them enough to speak to them directly. And he realized that even young children can live out their relationship with Christ. And this has implication for children, obviously, which is to obey. But this also holds implication for parents. Because parents are listening to this command that children are to obey. What does this mean for parents then? The primary application is for children. But for parents, it means that we should expect and enforce obedience. It means that we should give commands that may be obeyed. It means to enforce the commands that are given. Someone has said, if we love our children too much to require them to do what is right, then we have not really loved them enough. Any parenting technique that gives your child permission to disobey is harmful to your children. And the motivation again for this goes back to Jesus Christ. Children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. We'll move on finally to the responsibility of fathers. The word translated fathers could be translated parents but it refers probably most especially to fathers. In a Christ-centered family, wives submit to their husbands, husbands love their wives, children obey their parents, and parents, to put it positively, encourage and not discourage their children. And here, parents, in particular fathers, are confronted with their tendency to have high expectations and enforce those with harshness and anger. And the combination of harsh words and distance and apathy toward children can produce this fatal combination lest they become discouraged. I wonder, fathers, parents, do you seek to encourage your children? Or do your words with your kids and your attitude to your kids tend to deflate and discourage them. 
is reflective of our self-centeredness to give a command, become irritated when it's not fulfilled. To expect things that are unreasonable or to give expectations and inconsistently enforce them. This is guaranteed to produce resentment, bitterness. Instead, we are commanded to encourage them. We should seek to cultivate in our children the courage and joy that the Lord would want them to have and model the grace that we have been shown in Jesus Christ. These are the instructions to family members. And this again flows from our life in Jesus Christ. If you then be raised with Christ, this is what it means to seek the things that are above. You know, these commands, these instructions are so specific For anyone who is part of a family, who is married, who has children, who has parents, and even for those of of you who may be beyond that stage or outside those particular categories, you too can reflect upon the responsibilities to love and to sacrifice and this mutual submission and everything being motivated by life in Christ. Some of you may be feeling this way. What if I failed in this area? There's grace for that too. To confess it to the Lord, to confess it to your family. And if you're in a position now where you feel like, I failed in such a way, but I can't go back and undo the damage, that's where you need to trust the Lord and rest in His sovereignty. Remember, the thing that motivates these instructions is not that family is everything, because it's not nor even that marriage is everything because it's not, or that children are everything because they're not. It is Jesus who became obedient even to the point of death. It's Jesus who loved giving his own life. It's Jesus who even as a child submitted to his earthly parents. It's Jesus who said, allow the children to come to me and forbid them not because of such is the kingdom of God. Christ centered family is a family that lives like this. That out of everything they do draws from the strength and life that is to be found in Christ. Let's bow our heads and we'll pray to the Lord. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I realize that we've covered a lot of ground. Any one of these relationships could be dealt with an entire sermon And yet there's something here for everyone to consider carefully as they apply them to their lives. And as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I want to speak directly to each group of individuals that are named here. I'll suggest something that you do in application to this. Wives, If the Lord has stirred in your heart and helped you realize what you need to do, your responsibility to your husband, would you consider asking your husband, do I encourage you in your leadership? Do you feel affirmed by the way that I respond to you? And be ready to listen to what he says. Consider asking him if there's one thing I can do to show you that I really do honor you 
as my leader, what would that be? Husbands, would you consider asking humbly and being ready to listen without defending or without excusing, asking your wife, does the way I treat you make you feel secure in my love for you? Is there something, is there, if there's one thing that I could do to demonstrate my love for you, what would that be? Husbands, would you consider asking that to your wives? And fathers, would you consider asking this to your children? Have I disheartened you by my harshness? Is there some way that I have provoked resentment in you? And be prepared to listen. And submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ and letting his life spring out in these actions. Our Father, I pray that you would be honored and exalted in our lives, in our families. That our lives would bring honor to you as our Lord and Savior. That everything we would do would not be for the sake of ourselves to earn some favor with you, but that all these responses would be flowing from the life that we have in Jesus Christ. I thank you that it is Christ who has won the victory. And even when we fail, as we do so often, we look to him, our perfect Savior, who died on our behalf who rose for us so that in all our failings and all our flaws, we can follow him and continue to be conformed to his image. Father, we thank you for these things and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen.